0: What better way to determine the future of the Impossible Burger than doing a blind taste test? So I've asked Landry Ayers, one of our production team, to join us in the studio and taste test one of these Impossible Burgers versus a real burger. So Landry, thank you so much for uh, opening your stomach uh, for science. Glad to be here. Um, now, I didn't expect you to take blind taste tests quite so literally, but this bandana you're wearing, is,
1: uh, it befits you. Uh, for science, uh, I want to <laughs> make sure that everything is is as it needs to be to have this be the most rigorous um, <laughs> e- experiment possible. It's an N of one, but uh, a very significant one. So why don't we start? I'm um, going to ask you to take
0: the burger on the right. Burger on the right. Uh, give it a good old bite, good old hee-haw, and uh, get first impressions.
1: Okay. All right. Burger on the right. If it is impossible, I having not looked at it at all, I wouldn't be able to tell. Tastes like meat. Uh pretty good amount of flavor. Um not too dry. Uh it seems seems good to me. I I I don't know. What kind of price range we're at here, uh, but a pretty tasty burger, so, right. you know, okay. I enjoyed it. Okay, now why don't we do burger on the left okay, and on. tell me
0: what you think, and uh, we'll do a, a guess. Which okay. one you think is the Impossible Okay,
1: this, the, the bun feels the same, so no hints so far. Hmm. Okay. I feel like this one has a little bit less of a meaty taste It is not like it is significantly more Mm planty in flavor, Uh, but I I feel like I just got much more of that sort of like – I got a very like recognizable like what the idea of beef is Uh to me from the first one. So if that is the Impossible Burger, the first one, it it could be that they just have really figured out how to distill like the idea of Mm -hmm. beef Mm -hmm. and put – and inject it in there or maybe I just I, I know my beef. So all right. So uh, gun to your head, which one do you think is the Impossible Burger? Right or left? Which one is the Impossible Burger? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna guess the one that I ate second, the one on the left. Just first impressions alone. Okay. Well, how about you? T- let's take off your blindfold okay. and take a visual
0: inspection. See okay. if that changes That's your a good idea opinion.
1: One moment. Through the jo- the power of uh, audio editing, this will never have happened. Okay. Okay, so I'm looking at the one that I ate first. Hmm, interesting. Now the second one. A little bit more pinkish, I feel like, on the second one. You know, I... Not being a grill master, per se, I don't know if I would be able to tell the difference okay. without All looking right. closely but so now i'm i'm a little torn i will say yeah okay yeah well Maybe
0: it may surprise you to learn that you were wrong in the first place, (gasps) that the burger on the right, your first burger
1: is the Impossible Burger, and the left is the real one. Fascinating. You, You, I I mean, I don't know if they've made a convert out of me, but I'm certainly (laughs) much more of a believer than I was prior to this recording, I must say. I do think the
0: blind taste test bit matters because you have, uh, once you've seen one, you can kind of identify the Impossible Burger just on look alone because it just looks a little bit. The grain looks a little bit different. I
1: agree. And looking at it now, I was about to say, but I hesitated because I, you know, I hey. I didn't consider myself an expert, but I can see some of the texture looks a little bit more, uh, almost like a like black bean patty esque, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it was put together, whereas the 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 meat tends to feel like it it, it was, you know it's its own thing separately. But
0: if that's all the difference, I mean, what matters to me is how it tastes. Yeah. It's like in
1: the mouth. Absolutely. I would not have known. Science (laughs) is amazing. (laughs)
0: After hearing Landry lasciviously munch his way through a burger, I'm feeling about 50% suddenly hungry and 50% utterly disgusted. And while this is obviously just one person, it's just a mere anecdote, the fact that the taste of the two burgers was so close they couldn't tell which was which, it's a sign that meat alternatives have become a true alternative. Right now, the cost of the Impossible Burger is still several times the cost per ounce of ground beef. But if consumers adopt it, then economies of scale should eventually make it price competitive with traditional beef, along with all the added environmental and cultural benefits. I wanted to know more about the future of meat alternatives, so I went to the Impossible Foods headquarters in Silicon Valley to meet with Rebecca Moses.
2: I'm Rebecca Moses, I'm our head of Impact Strategy. So what that means is, as a business, uh, kind of our, our, you know, our core mandate is help create a food system that's much more sustainable. Create these environmental savings around land, water, greenhouse gas emissions. And so we can do that really through core business. We can do that through product. We can do that through the markets that we roll out in. And so thinking about the ways that we can maximize that environmental impact, um, the ways that we can kind of create change agents out of our consumers, that's a big part of my job. And so maybe we
0: should set a baseline, which is what we're deviating from. Uh, what is the problem with just frying up a good old burger? If it's 4th of July, uh, fireworks later that night, frying a burger on my gr- on my grill. Why is that potentially a problem?
2: Beef comes from cattle. And so cattle are just a really, really inefficient way of getting calories and protein out of plants and onto your plate uh, to the tune of like a 97% loss in the amount of calories and protein that were originally in those plants. And so, look, you scale this up, you think about, currently more than 7 billion people on the planet were eating more and more beef. The cost of what that's doing in terms of our environment is fundamentally going to compromise food security moving forward. I mean, you can't really overstate the urgency of this. It's hard to overstate the level of, of problem that we're looking at in terms of biodiversity loss, in terms of the opportunity cost of the land that we're using and the carbon capture that could be there. Um, So it's, it's, Finding different ways to shift our food system, finding really kind of transformative solutions where people don't have to be convinced of behavior change. Um, That's really what the company is about, finding that perfect product that can be much more sustainable, still meeting those needs that a consumer has. You want it to be good. You want it to sizzle on a grill. Um, But uh, yeah, the, the system does need to change. It's just environmentally untenable.
0: It's, uh, I mean, I'm reminded of the statistics about the rate of, um, I suppose we can say economic growth in the developing world and something that's a bit of a constant in human history is that as people become wealthier, as a society becomes more prosperous, they eat more meat. Um, now I have heard that there's a kind of a a counter to that, which is that, uh, some of the most environmentally damaging meat that's produced is in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, so what does Impossible Foods have a, like, what's the vision for a, a world in which products like Impossible Foods um, are more widely used, not just in the United States, but globally? Is the world in which no meat is consumed? Where should the, where should this impact be felt first?
2: Well, it's it's definitely true that emerging economies are seeing a huge boost in uh, their demand for meat products. That includes dairy, includes pork. Um, certainly, cattle is the one that, uh, as our environmental person, that that really scares me. Um, but it, the Western world and and other economies have been eating meat to a huge extent for a very long time. So we've already kind of set that environmental footprint. Like this is this is what what we did. Um, As those countries and as those economies start adding meat consumers, what's really important is that we provide new technologies or new ways of getting that same experience, the nutrition, the um, food culture, synchronicity, finding new ways of getting a product to them that can leapfrog um, the effects of what would otherwise happen if that were to come from animals. So we're already completely, I'd say, biophysically maxed out in terms of what Uh, We can do with livestock scaling. It's already 30 to 50% of our land area. Um, Compare that to just 3% for urban places, urban environments where humans live and work. Um, It's a tremendous use of land, tremendous opportunity cost for carbon. And if we expand that, if we expand that system, we make our footprint even bigger um, the outcomes for food security are going to be pretty dire. These new consumers absolutely deserve good nutrition, good experience with food, the same access to the things that the rest of the world has you know, decided they're going to enjoy, too. And finding new ways to provide that, you know, it's part of the reason that we're in Hong Kong and Macau and Singapore. That's where emerging growth is happening. And in a lot of cases, that's coming out of other countries. You have virtual resource flows Feeding demand for cattle in Asia is coming out of the Latin American tropics. And we need to preserve these places. We all need to change the way we eat, um, especially those of us who are already consuming a lot of meat.
0: So let's take, say, a pound worth of traditional ground beef you buy at the store. and Let's say you got a pound of Impossible Burger. Though I think it's sold in 12-ounce chunks at the moment. But let's say a pound. So pound for pound, what's the difference in terms of Oh, greenhouse gas emissions or environmental impact factor to get to the one versus to the other.
2: So, what we did is we have a full life cycle assessment. This is how we know what these numbers are, and we basically took Impossible Burger and we said, "All right, we know what our, what all these impacts are," um, and then we compared that to a very typical feedstock or rather uh, feedlot operation in the United States. So that's traditionally regarded as like the most efficient beef can get is. A situation that's not very good for the cow. But. Um, and so across the board, we're about 89% more efficient in terms of our greenhouse gases. Um, we, we use or generate far, far less. Uh, 87% more efficient in terms of water and 96% more efficient in terms of land use. Um, and on a per pound basis, I, I believe that translates to about 90 gallons of water. Uh, it's a it's a little under 300 square feet of land uh, spared, and it is about 30 pounds of carbon equivalents uh, that are spared.
0: Then maybe we should talk to what actually goes into the Impossible Burger. What's the key ingredient that makes it so impossibly burger-like?
2: Heme is our magic ingredient. It's uh, really the kind of catalyst for why the product can behave like beef in terms of cooking and changing color and the flavors and the um, the sensory experience that you are familiar with from beef, heme in high abundance in red meat is what causes that. So this molecule is found in every living organism uh, in high abundance in things like red meat. And we clearly weren't going to go to animals for that source, even though it's really important for how Meat cooks. What we did was we found uh, that molecule in a protein expressed in the root nodules of soy plants. It was, it was well known that this that this existed. Um, it's called uh, leg hemoglobin. We were just the first to figure out how to put it into food. So we uh, we don't harvest that from the root nodules of soy plants. We uh, produce that in in yeast fermentation culture, simil- similar to uh, how you'd produce rennet for for hard cheese or um, Belgian beer, even. Uh, much more sustainable for us. And so that's the key ingredient that goes in with uh, protein from soy, protein from potato, coconut oil, and sunflower oil. And it allows us to replicate what that experience is, um, from cooking to tasting to largely nutrition. Um, heme is super important for that.
0: Now, this was, as I understand that Patrick Brown, who's the original founders, scientist by, by training, this was his insight, right? The idea that Heem, we don't need it from animals or from meat, though obviously it's a rich source of it. But we can extract it from, from, I don't know if soy was his initial thought. How did this occur? Do you have a story about how Pat, this came to Pat
2: him. has such a great story for how he came to this. I mean, he was not in food manufacturing at all. I mean, he was a biochemist at Stanford, sort of an atypical uh, CEO and founder for a startup. And he is just someone who kind of sits around and thinks about how to, how to save the environment. Um, so over, over the course of doing so, during a sabbatical year that he had from Stanford, he uh, sort of arrived at the conclusion that consumers are the most important thing that you can leverage to spare the environment. You can't ask for behavior change, but you have in the U.S. more than 300 million people who you can potentially create as change agents if you can help change the way that they eat um without asking them to compromise and so he his thought was well i know the livestock sector is the absolute predominant driver of these things like biodiversity loss of um climate contributions of uh carbon capture losses so uh how do i create how do you know build a better mousetrap like how do you make a better product that's more sustainable but still delivers that experience and so he started this company to make meat from plants knowing that that was going to be much more sustainable uh Early on, I mean, he assembled this group of of wonderful scientists, and their kind of initial hypothesis was, "What's so different? Why why can't a veggie burger like we have on the shelves now? Why can't that act like meat? Um, why why is it just not as good?" Um, well, heme, heme is really important. It's in the myoglobin of of your blood and in hemoglobin, and we, as a as a company, have really found that that's uh, that that's important for how our product behaves. So. He came to that idea, just trying to figure out how do you, from the ground up, build a product that can be made from plants, that can be delicious, um, that can really create that experience of meat. So they did testing, figured out, yeah, this is, from a sensory perspective, um, from a a chemical perspective, it's important for how meat does what it does.
0: The idea of using soy-based, as you know, soy as an alternative to to meat. Um, And we've had veggie burgers for some time. This is not like that part of it. The idea of a meat alternative based on soy is not brand new. I mean, the heme element is, but that's not brand new. And between Impossible Foods and Beyond Burger, we have two competitors, both with a lot of excitement, a lot of attention in this space. So why now? And they use different means. I mean, you know, Impossible's got heme. Beyond Burger has their own approach using a different protein base. Um, But why at this moment as opposed to any other point in the last, say, 30 years, um, do you think this is really attracting so much excitement? Is it cultural? Is it economic? Is it technological?
2: You know, it's probably a little bit of everything. I think the reason we're seeing kind of a a sea change in how we're approaching food technology and food systems has to do to some extent with, oh, God, we're, we're recognizing that the climate issue is incredibly urgent, maybe more so than we thought. Um, we're recognizing that our food systems are kind of in in peril. If we keep on eating the way that we do, clearly that's an incentive for founders to kind of get into this, but you need the economic component. So between kind of recognizing that there's a need for it from a just a planetary resilience perspective, from investors recognizing that this is a massive trillion dollar market, um, tons of room for growth, uh, that it's in, you know, Not only is it a huge existing market, but the additional market of emerging economies. There's a a very good way to make money from this. Third, the technology associated with how we produce heme, how we can uh, go down to a molecular level and figure out how to reverse engineer uh, from plant ingredients uh, what the experience of meat is. It all came together at a perfect time. And we've really seen clearly the proof of concept and the investment excitement for it. On
0: the kind of economic point, on the cost price point, so my understanding is that uh, 12 ounces of Impossible Burger's ground beef is like uh, um, $9 for for 12 ounces, Um, which is you can get a pound, so a little more than that, of ground beef for three, four bucks. So we're talking about Impossible Burgers costing about three times as much for weight, maybe a little more compared to regular beef. Um, So right now... We're still asking. I mean, Impossible Burgers is still asking people to pay a premium. To I mean, for a variety of good reasons to help save the environment, more sustainability, etc. Um, are there efficiencies that, like, I mean, do you see that price coming down? Is there a way to make that cheaper to make it more price competitive with beef in the medium term?
2: Sure. And and two things. I mean, it really depends on where you're purchasing Impossible Burger. Um, you know, Impossible Lasagna, Impossible. Uh, you know, beef bolognese, whatever it was turned into, wherever you're purchasing that, um, if it's from a restaurant partner, that price can be really variable. So I'm from Minnesota. I was really excited <laughs> when uh, we launched with White Castle. So nice, it's like yeah. two bucks a slider, right? And so like <laughs> right. my dad can eat that and he's super cheap and he can't eat cholesterol. So like that's great for him. Um, at the same time, you can get it at a really fancy restaurant. That's very... Similar to how ground beef is is marketed, right? I mean, depending on where you are, you're going to get kind of a different experience, um, different price point. The Whopper is a, is a, you know, impossible Whopper is a buck more. The intent is 100% to bring the costs down eventually or to bring the price down as a result. And through economies of scale, we can definitely do that. I mean, just thinking about what our supply chain is versus what it takes to create an animal um, from feed crops to, to rearing it over years to slaughter. You know, taking plant ingredients and and fun, you know, fundamentally squishing them together, we we can bring those costs down.
0: Because you can see the real transformative effect happening when people who are, um, they're on the fence about, you know, maybe they do care about helping the environment, but at the end of the day, they want something that tastes comparable, and that is they're but they're not willing to pay much of a premium for that because uh, yeah. They're just looking for the cheapest thing on the shelf. If you can get that price point closer, that unlocks a huge community of people who they're not doing it for altruistic reasons primarily. That's the that's the bonus for them. It's because hey, here's a thing that's yeah,
2: and and people will see us all over the country, um, including in Asia. And I think it's important to remember we're really young as a company, so that price point we're at small scale. Yeah, yeah. we have massively expanded production over the past uh, several months to meet demand and as you scale, of course prices come down um, so it's it's kind of a matter of time but for right now it is it is fairly accessible and I think we've you know consumers can can kind of see that depending on on where they are um, but yeah getting to an accessible price is really important for the mission mm-hmm. the environmental mission if you know we look at consumer, polling, we look at consumer data and not just for us across the board, yeah. people might be motivated by sustainability. It doesn't mean you're going to purchase something based on your environmental values. Few people do. And you do actually need an alternative. So the difference between like a Toyota Corolla and a Prius isn't that big. Um, but you don't really have that for a veggie burger. At least we mm-hmm. didn't until mm-hmm. you know recently. You, you don't get the same experience of a veggie burger that you did with beef.
0: So one of the other, um, I mean, in terms of meat, I don't know if they, we call this meat alternatives. And we'll, we'll get to the meat, the alternatives question in, in a bit here. But the other um, kind of big startup interest and uh, venture capital interest in this general space of meat and meat alternatives is lab grown beef um, or lab grown meat, uh, cultured cultured cells and the like, um, which at this point still is, is, you know, we're years away from serious consumer rollout. Uh, it's still fantastically expensive relative to what to, to even you guys, but we can imagine a future in which lab-grown meat is price competitive with you guys with regular beef. Um, what's the argument for Impossible Burgers in that future world? In the world in which you can have meat that is you know actual is not. Um, A meat alternative, meat that is uh, um, molecularly very similar to, you know, it's grown in the lab, but it's meat from a cow cow originally, has all the environmental benefits or many of the environmental benefits, or maybe it doesn't, um, but has some of the environmental benefits of of things like uh, Impossible Burgers. Why would consumers choose Impossible Burgers over lab-grown meat? Um, in the future in which this, you know, you, you have you have this plethora of options in front of you. They're all price competitive. Why still have an Impossible Burger?
2: Well, I, I would really turn that premise on its head. I mean, we're looking at what we have, which is a plant-based burger that can function in the same way, deliver the same sensory experience, deliver nutrition. We can keep getting better, mm-hmm. right? Um, You know, we can keep on improving. Cattle can't really do that. Um, You have millions of amazing uh, plants, crops that you can go to to find these proteins, find these fats and oils, um, and create something that you don't have to compromise on the experience of. And we're commercially available. Um, Now, looking at a different technology that's much farther out, much harder to prove, I would argue uh, that we have not seen um, proof of the um, kind of across-the-board environmental uh, sustainability improvement of that. It's still very early technology, um, very energy intensive. So it kind of depends on what grade you're on. Uh, but why go with something that's kind of an unproven, unproven, exquisite technology when there's an abundance of plant-based options out there and we can really create that that same experience and it's from kind of known food sources. Um, I, I think that there is a huge argument to be made that you know maybe there's room for all of these things in a future food system if we can get the environmental credentials right, if we can get the nutrition right, the exper- experience and, and kind of culinary characteristics right. There, there's room for all of these things if we can hit those marks. Right now, we're showing that we're able to do that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what the future is is going to hold, but...
0: There was kind of an uh, industry movement in uh, among uh, vegetable growers and the companies that, that sell vegetables to, uh, it's been years ago now, but the push for an organic, a self-labeling organic label, um, on food and some sort of certifications, industry run certification system for saying, well, this food is organic, was organically raised via these minimum criteria, etc." cetera. Um, is there any interest, uh, for Impossible Foods to work with other meat alternatives to do something similar, um, that this is food that is certified to be, I don't even know what the term would be, but it m- meets these minimum requirements of, of sustainability, uh, some sort of self-labeling way of helping consumers identify the environmental impacts of the foods they're eating.
2: And there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, and on the consumer side, it's not necessarily something that they want to have front of mind or that currently is front of mind. Um, that's kind of the premise of the product, right, is that it doesn't have to be. Yeah. Uh, At the same time, we hold ourselves accountable to kind of our own standards. At a certain point, maybe you can see some some value in a a certification framework. Um, In terms of other kind of agricultural products, there's varying degrees of success with achieving outcomes through that. Um, But for right now, what we do is we really focus on our sustainability credentials and work to optimize those. And if we can be um, you know, we are as transparent as possible with that, whether it makes it onto a label. Um, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, maybe in Scandinavia. <laughs> that's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> um, uh, in, in fact, I think your, your founder, I think Patrick Brown, um, he doesn't like that. I just use the, I've been using the phrase a lot here, meat alternatives. My understanding, he doesn't like the alternatives part of that. He just wants to call it meat. Um, I, I suppose logic is that Hema HEMA, regardless of whether it's from meat or from, or from soy. Um, Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Why doesn't he like the term meat alternatives?
2: I I can't speak to to Pat's kind of theory on that, Um, although I can can kind of take a guess as to, well, how are we defining meat, right? For me, and I think the way that we approach it as a company is whatever you call it, if we are able to deliver a product that can be substituted for a very environmentally intensive product, um, if you can get consumers to switch over to something... um, Without asking them for behavior change, that's really whatever you call it. That's the goal. Um, and so, if it's meat from plants, whatever it is, what we're seeing is ninety-five percent adoption by omnivores. And um, so, our audience, our consumers, about ninety-five percent of them, ninety to ninety-five percent of them, um, eat meat on a regular basis. So, I, I'm not sure there, too. Uh, bothered by whatever it's called. Clearly, there's a market for it. Um, they're substituting. That's where you get these environmental outcomes. And I think we'll we'll kind of wait and see how the the vernacular develops around uh, meat sure. from plants.
0: What's the response been like um, from the vegan vegetarian community? So on the one hand, the push for here is a thing that is as close to substitute for a burger as possible is by its nature kind of framed around the interests of meat eaters. Like, you don't have to sacrifice the things you love about meat when you eat an Impossible Burger. But in a sense, vegetarians and vegans, I imagine, have a bit of an interest in being different. I mean, that's, that appeal wouldn't necessarily work as well with the veg, vegan vegetarian community. So what's what's the response been like from the vegan vegetarian community? And, like, do you have a different way of approaching that question for them?
2: I mean, the, the vegetarian and vegan communities. It's it's important to remember they're already kind of doing the right thing when it comes to sustainability and, and future food security. They're already eating low on the food chain. Um, that said, I mean, if they want to consume the product, that's great. Um, certainly, our market is omnivores, but with vegans and vegetarians, I just you know, from my personal experience, it's been a big diversity of reactions. Uh, some of them, depending on why they gave up meat in the first place, um, are like, oh, my God, this is the first time I've been able to have a burger in forever. I'm so happy. I love this. I've definitely met a vegan or two who, it's, for them, it's like, I gave up meat because I didn't really like it. This is totally squicking me out, um, to use a technical term. It's it's uncanny <laughs> for them. So uh, it's definitely, a, there's a kind of a mixed bag there.
0: So there have been moves by so anytime you have a new food technology and uh, there are incumbent interests, uh, 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 market dominant actors, you know, they have a natural uh, tendency to want to limit competition from a new kind of upstart technology. This was true of uh, butter producers and margarine. So they passed a the law saying you can't color your margarine before you sell it to consumers. So once upon a time, if you're old enough you remember having to spread a little yellow dye manually after you bought your margarine, which is kind of ludicrous thinking of now. But the idea was butter manufacturers didn't like, you couldn't call it butter, you had to call it margarine, and you couldn't color it so consumers wouldn't be, I'm doing air quotes here, confused about what actual butter was. We're seeing something similar right now with um, traditional uh, meat farmers, with the uh, livestock associations, Calamans associations, pushing for states, uh, most recently Missouri to ban calling things like Impossible Burger and be alternatives meat. Um, does Impossible Burger have a stance on that? What's your response to these attempts to force you to not label what you're calling meat?
2: I mean, we are so transparent in, in how we talk about the product, our consumer interactions. We tell say exactly what's in it. We say it's plant-based burger. Um and I think we have a lot of faith in consumers that they know what they're eating, they know what their choices are. Um and so we're gonna we're gonna leave it to to them. And uh you know, it is a, a new frontier for labeling, but we generally put our faith in in the folks who are consuming the product and who are choosing it. So, you know, we had a team presence at um the UN Climate Week um in New York and it was so motivating um, to just see, like, there was, you know, three, four million youth out protesting uh, last week talking about, like, for Jesus, guys, like, let's get it together. Let's figure out climate change. Um, and can you help us out a little bit, the generations who've been here before? And just the way that I see this product, I think the way that Impossible um, has has evolved, this is a product, this is a toolkit, or rather, this is a tool for that toolkit. Um, for the people who are asking for action on climate, for the people who are looking for solutions that are transformative, that aren't just these incremental, you know, tweaks to your supply chain. That's why this was was really created. So we're in a zeitgeist of, of climate urgency. Um, and it's good timing that the plant-based economy is really kind of growing at this exact time. You know, food, meat, plants, whatever it is, food is so deeply emotional and cultural and significant for people in their daily life, um, there's certainly going to be a lot of angst around anything that is perceived to be driving um, scarcity or deprivation. And that's the opposite of what we're doing as a company. And I think the opposite of what the plant-based food movement is doing. This is about abundance. It's not about restricting yourself from something. It's not about, you know, telling people they can't do it. It's about providing a new option and, and letting consumers aside and become change agents. And, you know, that's it's not about um, saying no. It's about, hey, here's here's a better option. You can take it or leave it.
0: I'd like to return to a point that we alluded to in the interview, there are incumbent industries who want to see impossible foods and other meat alternatives fail. As you can imagine, it's not in the individual interest of cattle ranchers or meat processors for competing products using a completely different supply chain to succeed. And normally that wouldn't be a problem. You know, May the best competitor in the marketplace win. But the meat industry is not a perfectly free market. There are government regulatory agencies on both the state and the federal level that are responsible for all those steaks and burger patties that end up on your plate. And traditional meat producers have been leaning on regulators to make life difficult for their competition. For example, last year, the Missouri Cattlemen's Association got the state legislature to pass a law making it illegal to call meat alternatives meat. A representative from the industry cartel said, quote, We want to make sure consumers know what they're getting. So if a food was grown in a lab, we want the label to say that. Let me call that logic what it truly is that's some concern trolling. I no more believe that this law was motivated by a sincere unalloyed desire for consumer welfare. than I believe that consumers are so stupid as to be unable to distinguish between meat from animals and meat from plant protein. Give people a little credit. We aren't complete and utter idiots all the time. But in the long run, these kinds of rear guard battles over captured government regulators will likely fail. There's a long history of similar ultimately failed attempts from big dairy banning margarine from being called butter or even being colored yellow at point of sale to the more recent proposal that almond milk not be allowed to be called milk because, quote, Almonds can't lactate. It's a sign of fear on the behalf of hidebound incumbent interests, fear of a future which people have more, better, and freer choices. And until next time, have a burger and be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find this on the web at www.libertarianism.org.